My name is Shorsha Dunbar and I'm your host. So, thank you so much for joining me for episode 8 of the Adventure Games podcast. I hope everyone is well. In this episode, I go on a quest for glory with Corey and Laurie Cole, where I go from being a rogue to hopefully finding my redemption. And before we get to the interview, I just want to talk about the latest news and developments in the adventure game genre the past week. And first, the, the Romanian developers stuck in Attic who are developing the upcoming adventure game Gibus a Cthulhu Adventure. They released an update on their game in the form of a dev development blog. And in this dev blog, they speak about the status of the game and they talk in more detail about what they are doing to make sure the game is as good as possible before they release it. And it's also a fascinating insight into game development and to really what it takes to make a game. So I would really recommend that people check this out. It's written by Libby Ball, who is the creative lead on the game. We will be hearing more about this game uh, in the near future, uh, before it's released, it's one of my most anticipated games of 2019, so best of luck to them, and I hope that they get everything sorted and that we can play the game very soon. And staying in Romania, another Romanian developer called Critique Games, they announced their new adventure game called Interrogation, a more conversational puzzle game. Now, in this game, you play as a detective where you have to bring down a mysterious terrorist organization, the Liberation Front. Now, the interesting thing about this game is that the core of the gameplay is interrogation, as the name implies. So you need to use a complex conversational simulation system to interrogate and psychologically manipulate realistic suspects in a war game about political radicalization and authority abuse. So when you are interrogating suspects, you need to decide how you go about interrogating them. Are you nice? Are you good cop, bad cop? And what ways do you speak with them? And how do you get the information from them? And the, the arch looks amazing as well. So I've been crying out for a game like this, and I'm really, really excited about this game. So the game again is Interrogation by Critique Gaming, which will be available in the second half of 2019. Uh, now, thirdly, uh, staying with Cthulhu and Lovecraft, Frogwares, who are developing Sinking City, they have announced a new release date for this game. So it was scheduled to be released on March in 2019. But they have pushed the release date back to June 27th, 2019. Now, the interesting thing about this is that they said that the reason was that they, the, the market is very crowded around now. So they want to push back the game to give us a chance to play other games in our libraries. And so hopefully there will be as many games released then 
So, uh, yeah, so we have a few months to go through our library before this game is released. So, again, really looking forward to it. And next, Ken Gao of Freebird Games. He developed To the Moon and Finding Paradise. He has announced that he is making a new game called Imposter Factory. Now, we know very little about this game, but what we do know is that in a stark shift from the development past story structure style, players will take part in a time-resetting thriller mystery that involves a series of bloody murders. Now, this game is set to be released sometime in 2020, and Ken Gao is very busy because he is also planning on releasing the game To the Moon to Switch. He is also working with a Chinese film company to make an animation film of his game To the Moon. And he's also releasing a 50-page comic, which includes stories from To the Moon, Finding Paradise, and the Sigmund Corporation Doctors. Now, you can pre-order this uh, comic in physical print form, or you can purchase it now as a digital DLC on Steam. And this comes with bonus music tracks based on Freebird's games, and anybody who's played his games knows that uh, the, the music is absolutely sensational. It's, it's absolutely beautiful. So if you haven't played To The Moon or Fighting Paradise, I would really recommend that you do. So I'm looking forward to finding out more about Imposter Factory. And lastly, before we get to the interview, I spoke about From Beyond Prologue and the last episode. And in the meantime, I've been in contact with the developer, William A. McDonald, and he gave me some more information about the game. So he mentioned that From Beyond Prologue has multiple endings. So even though the game, as I mentioned, was short, you can still replay it and possibly get a different ending. So he said that depending on what order you play the game in, what you do in the game, it is possible to resolve the game without resolving 100% of puzzles. So if you finish it, you can go back and you can maybe see some extra scenes and some different endings that you didn't see the first time around. And he said it took him about eight or nine months to make. And he is also working on not one, but two sequels. So From Beyond the Colors, From Beyond Colored, and From Beyond the Diner Party. And the Diner Party is a game that will be released Next, he's hoping for a release in October 2019, before Halloween. And he says that this game, the graphics and sounds that are there being targeted at the Genesis level this time around, with some innovative new features that he said that he believes that the companies ICOM and Kemco would have used in their later games if they had continued to make adventure games later on. So, uh, again, if you haven't played From Beyond Prologue, I would highly recommend you give it a try. I really, really enjoyed it, and I believe you will too. So, the best of luck to William in his uh, development of the future games. Okay, so now it's time for the interview with Corey and Laurie Cole. Now, I was very excited to speak with them. For anyone who doesn't know, they made five Quest for Glory games, and they most recently released a game called Hero U World 2 Redemption, and they are now formed their own company called Transolar Games, and they have been an inspiration for many people around the world, as 
you know, we talk about. And in this interview, we talk about those games and we also talk about their design philosophy and what they believe makes a great game. And also the extraordinary lengths that they went through to not just release Hero U Road to Redemption, but to make the game as good as possible. Oh, and before we get to the interview, uh, as I mentioned last week, the, the sound quality on my end isn't great. Uh, apparently Skype updated sound settings without uh, me knowing, and so the sound settings went back to default. So you can hear me as if it's I'm from a loudspeaker. You can still hear me, but the sound quality isn't great. Thankfully, we hear mostly from Korean though we call, and we can hear them perfectly. So, uh, so yes, yeah, so here is the interview. I am delighted to, and honoured to be joined by Corey and Laurie Cole, uh, the developers of Quest for Glory and Hero You Road to Redemption. So, hello, Corey and Laurie. How are you, how are you guys doing? Oh, we're doing great. Hi there. Hello. So, uh, I'm Corey Cole. And I'm Laurie Cole. And uh, I guess collectively we're called the Coles on uh, Wikipedia, but... Uh, we are uh, uh, gamers and, and since childhood, and it's been a long time since childhood. But uh, Lori and I met at a uh, gaming convention in San Francisco uh, some, oh my God, 40 years ago. Uh, and uh, uh, we've been uh, together most of the time ever since. And uh, uh, we did a series of games for Sierra Online uh, back in the uh, uh, 89 to uh, 98 called uh, Quest for Glory. And we also did, I did a game called Castle of Dr. Brain. Lori did one called Mixed Up Fairy Tales. And uh, the uh, the Quest for Glory games are uh, a combination of what Sierra was known for at the time was uh, uh, graphic adventure games, uh, both uh, typed in and point and click games where you moved a character around and interacted with your environment and uh, games of discovery and exploration and, and puzzles. And our background is from, uh, we came from uh, Dungeons and Dragons and tabletop role playing. Uh, so we brought in kind of a role-playing game sensibility into the adventure games with uh, our Quest for Glory series where, you know, you're doing the same things and moving around the environment and interacting with things, but uh, you're also uh, developing your character skills, your uh, your strength, and your, uh, you know, maybe your lockpicking if you're a, a rogue or, uh, you know, your magic skills or your fighting skills, and you will be fighting uh, monsters occasionally in the course of this because this... Uh, peaceful valley that you come to turns out not to be so peaceful and the whole object is to become a hero in the end so it's uh, our games are all about heroism and uh you know making your character into a better person hopefully the player making themselves into better people as a result of playing these games that, that sounds very good so it's definitely very positive uh outlook uh, in the games then so um why don't we just very quickly ask you guys how you just started working for sierra so how did you get involved? Did it start at the same time at Sierra? Did it start one after the other? Pretty pretty close together, and that actually ties in. I mentioned we met at a science fiction convention. Well, we got into another thing called folk singing, which is uh, science fiction and fantasy folk singing at uh, conventions. Uh, through that, we met quite a few people, uh, one of whom was Carly Hawk's daughter, who was a, uh, uh, a contract animator for Sierra. And she called us up one day and said, uh, uh, you know, hey, I was at a meeting at uh, Sierra, and they've been doing these adventure games, and they pretty much own the adventure game market, but they want to get into role-playing games. And, uh, you know, I told uh, Ken Williams, who uh, runs Sierra, that 
you know, you two are, uh, you know, expert uh, role-playing uh, gamers and dungeon masters, and, and he said he'd like to talk to you. And that led to uh, a phone conversation at Sierra, and, you know, he wasn't really sure, uh, you know, uh, whether he's, you know, he needed another uh, pair of uh, strangers to come in and uh, make games for them instead of people already there. But then he found out that uh, I was a, a programmer, and I knew how to program the Atari ST, and he had a need for that. So my first few months at Sierra were spent converting the uh, Sierra's uh, adventure game engine, uh, they called SCI, uh, over to the Atari ST and Amiga, and later the Macintosh. And uh, Lori came uh, came out a few months later, and uh, you know we uh, pitched uh, the concept that became uh, we, we originally called it uh, Heroes Quest, and uh, after their main game King's Quest. And due to copyright issues, uh, we later, or trademark issues, we later had to change the name to uh, Quest for Glory. But uh, yeah, it all really, really all came out of uh, science fiction fantasy fandom. Uh, and I got into the, uh, actually both of us got into the uh, science fiction conventions to some extent because of tabletop gaming. Yes, we love to play games and we always wanted to make games. So when this call from Carly came around, it was like, yes, this is exactly what we want to do. And so then, of course, the first thing that happens is Corey gets hired as a programmer, so he's no longer a game designer. And that meant that I had to take up the uh, the mantle and become the game designer for the for the uh, project. And it turned out that actually worked out really well, because what I was doing is I was uh, writing behind-the-scenes code uh, of the, uh, you know, the language interpreter, the runtime system. So I learned very intimately everything that the SCI language could and could not do. So by the time that six months later that we pitched uh, Heroes Quest, Ken Williams asked for was a game similar to the Ultima series. And I said, you know what? Uh, your engine will not handle that. Uh, it, it will not make a good Ultima-style game. But what we can do is something that's similar to what we did in the tabletop role-playing, where you're using all the strengths of your adventure game engine, but you have room in there to add all the things that make a role-playing game, like combat and uh, stats and so on. Because what really makes a good game is a good story. And right, yes. Adventure games had more story in them, and role-playing games had more hack and slash. But the melding of the two gives you this kind of excitement and thrill that you don't get from just the cerebral trying to solve the puzzle of an adventure game just to progress your story. Yeah, so characters dying mm -hmm. in the game, you know, is not really fun, but, you know, can be amusing <laughs> if done properly. But the possibility that your character might get injured or, or, or killed uh, and that you may have to restore your game adds a, a degree of excitement that you don't get from uh, just wandering around and interacting with things and not having any danger. So we like, you know, putting that feeling of danger in there makes it more visceral. What we want to do is, is is have total immersion in the game when you're playing it. You feel like you're actually that character going through this environment, solving these problems yourself, rather than you're watching somebody do something and you're trying to figure out what the puzzle is. So we really want a true role-playing into the whole game genre. That all sounds, uh, sounds great. It sounds exactly like what I remember as well, and um, just want to ask as well. So you mentioned how you uh, wanted to combine elements of uh, role-playing games and the story and the plots of adventure games. Do you know of any other <coughs> games before the Quest for Glory games that were a hybrid like that, or as far as you know, is Quest for Glory, you know, the first of its kind? Well, you know, it's, it's just a matter of degree. I would say that uh, like one of the uh, earliest games uh, out on uh, like. I think it was even on CPM and stuff like that. Temple of Apshai 
uh, had a thing where uh, they didn't even have room for much text uh, on the screen. So they had a book that came with it and they would have a, a little code, uh, you know, uh, a numbers show up that says, you know, paragraph 151 show up on the screen. And then you would open your book and turn to uh, uh, that paragraph would give you the text describing what you saw. Uh, <laughs> so it was really, really primitive back then. So in a sense, we arrived in the industry at the perfect time mm. where we could really combine all these things and, you know, and really show on the screen what was happening. So, you know, the irony to us was always that uh, uh, when people talked about computer role-playing games, uh, we didn't consider consider that they had any role-playing in them. They were, mm. they were hack and slash games. And we wanted our role-playing games to actually, you know, have the character playing a role uh, mm-hmm. and really feeling like, you know, you had people you were talking to. So I guess where we went above and beyond the adventure game call is Lori really likes to build games around character Mm -hmm. and story. And so we had far more conversations and character interactions than uh, previous games. Yeah, usually adventure games were built around what puzzle is it going to be in what room. And our puzzles and things came out of the story rather than were the whole story. It was the interaction of the, the whole environment and the characters that were in that environment that created the puzzles, that created the, the course of the story. So they all tied together and built upon each other to create a cohesive adventure game. Right, yeah. Uh, yes, sir, Corey, you want to say something? Uh, oh, I, th- I can, I can uh, speak for hours. Just <laughs> any, uh, you know, particular things you want answered. Uh, I, I could listen. For, for hours, but <laughs> but uh, I, I wanted to ask you then because when you know you, you had this um, hybrid then of games, so you had the technology there to be able to add the story and uh, you know the puzzles and uh, the role playing elements. H- had you played any of the other Sierra games, like I believe the Qu- King's Quest games, before you joined Sierra? So were you aware of their games before you joined Sierra? Well, I was certainly aware of them. I had uh, gone to a party at one point uh, that was actually a, a a party at which we were playing a Dungeons and Dragons game. But beforehand, the uh, the host had uh, a computer that he had uh, uh, soft porn adventure playing on it, which was the uh, predecessor to uh, Leisure Suit Larry. Yeah. And so I had uh, you know spent a few minutes uh, going through that and kind of. Uh, chuckling at, you know, the silliness of it all. <laughs> and, you know, I was aware of King's Quest. I think I'd played a few minutes of of each, you know, a couple of the games, but uh, I, I seem to recall the uh, Goat at the Bridge and a, a couple things like that. But, you know, we weren't big adventure game players uh, as far as, you know, what we liked to play was role-playing games. So we played Wizardry and Dungeon Master and Ultima. Yeah, so we just hadn't really been interested in playing those games until Corey actually had to work on him. And then suddenly we saw how the games were presented. Although actually I started on the computer, I started getting excited about the possibilities of computer gaming from the original adventure games, uh, mm. uh, Advent, which was Colossal Cave Adventure and Zork. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I don't mean the little Zork one, two and three, they put in micros. The, the original Zork was basically Zork one and two combined with a little bit of three and was uh, quite a gigantic game at the time. Right. Yeah. Well, I came a bit later to, to Adventure Games, uh, to mention uh, in the introduction episode that my first game was Broken Sword. So, ah, okay. Uh, yeah, which is not a bad place to begin. You know, that really helped me fall in love with the genre. And I've been, you know, going through Adventure Games as much as I could since then. So, but I'll have to check. I've definitely, you know, I'm also like aware of Zork and I've heard 
a lot of people speak uh, really highly about those games. So, and actually, I think I have them on my iPad. So I uh, really need to check them out, you know, on a train journey or something. But, I, I, uh, I'm in a similar boat. I believe I own uh, Broken Sword uh, along <laughs> with uh, dozens or hundreds of uh, games that I own and have uh, never gotten around to playing. Oh, um, I know. <laughs> like me. Uh, more um, recent, yeah, more recently I have Broken Age and I have, uh, I think I have the Jane uh, Jensen uh, game and, uh, you know, sometimes, you know, I get a few minutes into these. Oh, yeah, no, and uh, speaking to other developers as well, they, they mentioned that when you're developing games, you don't have enough time to play other games. Uh, did you guys find that as well? <laughs> well, not really, actually. We are completely hooked on World of Warcraft. Uh, okay. And what we actually find is that once you're playing World of Warcraft, there's no time for any other game. Uh, we also <laughs> play Heroes of the Storm, which is a, uh, a MOBA. And, okay. Uh, uh, and we do that as a social activity. We have a friend uh, that gets on with us uh, several times a week, and uh, uh, we spend an hour or two, uh, uh, you know, going down the lanes and fighting with each other over why we're not where we're supposed to be. Uh, <laughs> Sounds great. So. But those are very different kinds of games. So, you know, it isn't the same mindset that you go in mm. with designing games as the games we play as the games we design. So it sure, keeps yeah. it very separate. Yeah, so in an adventure game, you're trying to solve the game, uh, mm-hmm. uh, whereas, uh, you know, World of Warcraft is more like, you know, timing. It's, it actually has so, some degree of twitch skills, but also, you know, knowing what your character can do and so on. Uh, so it's uh, the puzzles are pretty light and well because they didn't want anybody to get stuck on and get uh, frustrated. Sure, Which yes. is a good thing, because honestly, <laughs> puzzles in games are there as imped- impediments so that you don't get through the game as fast. Yeah, right, one, of, yeah. one of the things with like King's Quest, you know, had uh, you know would have like fifty or sixty uh, what they called rooms scenes in the game, and about forty of them were pretty much there just uh, as space fillers, so that you would have to uh, spend a lot of time walking around and uh, uh, going places just so you wouldn't finish the game in you know half an hour. Right. Yeah. No, I, I remember when I played those games, and it was a long time ago when I played them, but. I believe there was a puzzle in King's Quest V with a snake, I think, that was blocking the path. And you had to figure out how to, I think, get the snake off the path. And what I was thinking is, why don't I just go around the snake? But <laughs> well, yeah, that was always the problem with an adventure game is right. some of the puzzles were not very realistic, you know. And, and you kept thinking of, well, I could do this or I could do that or I could do this. And you couldn't do that because that wasn't the solution to the puzzle. Yeah, that was uh, that's the challenge uh, because when you're coming from tabletop role playing, you know the dungeon master, the game master, and a, a tabletop game will have uh, you know spent a lot of time uh, plotting out uh, locations and events and and combats and so on. And then the party comes along, and you've got all these uh, crazy uh, role played characters that in our games, the ones we played typically, many times uh, we would spend an entire session never leaving the tavern. Uh, it's, uh, because it was all role-playing. Uh, or, you know, the uh, Dungeon Master would have in mind for uh, us to go and explore this, uh, you know, complex, uh, uh, you know, scenario we'd set in a castle down to the south, and everyone would say, let's go west. Yes. And so <laughs> when we go around designing games and puzzles in games, we try to say, what would the player want to do here? Not, you know, so you aren't guessing the, pro- the uh, programmer's mind 
or the designer's mind, you're saying, okay, what should I do here? And then we try to accommodate it as much as possible. Yeah, right. That sounds sounds great. Yes, very cool. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, back in the uh, primitive days of the, you know, the first text adventures, one of the great innovations at uh, MIT, uh, there people didn't like to curse, so uh, they would, uh, you know, somebody might say foo. Uh, which uh, could be considered to be <laughs> fu, but uh, anyway, uh, so so they would say foo bar foo bletch, uh, which was just kind of a nonsense phrase. So they programmed it into uh, uh, a Zork, so that and I think maybe adventure no certainly in Zork that you if you type foo it would come back and say foo bar and bletch, uh, <laughs> uh, and that was actually a game clue because there was a, a bar of uh, silver somewhere that you had to do something with. But, uh, uh, you know, so that way you got used to the idea that bar was a keyword. Oh, and, clever. Uh, you know, then if you cursed in some of these games, they'd say, you know, did your mother teach you to swear like that? <laughs> and at, at the time, you know, people never expected that a computer could actually catch, you know, because, you know, they'd be frustrated. They'd type, damn, you know, or something like that. And, and the computer would respond to it and they'd be like, oh, my God, it knows what I'm saying. Exactly, uh, exactly yeah. <laughs> and, and this was uh, all new and weird to us uh, back in, uh, you know, the, the 70s and 80s. But, uh, you know, today you're kind of expecting that the computer will, you know, uh, Alexa, you know, uh, mm-hmm. uh, bring me my slippers. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, yeah. No, so that, now we expect, you know, that uh, computers are, are, you know, uh, theory, you know, that, they're, that, they, that they know, like, you know, so, sometimes it's, I know it's a computer, but it's like, you know, having a conversation, uh, which yeah. is. It's it's kind of scary as well, a little bit. I find. Yeah, it is. But the uh, the frustration in adventure games has always been uh, all the totally reasonable things that you say to it that it does not understand. Right. And, yeah. Uh, you know, we'd have a ro- variety of messages for like that, like you know, I don't know what you're saying or I don't understand that. Uh, but it's really that's a frustration of the player. So we tried to uh, with Quest for Glory, we tried to channel players. We told them if you say look at, that almost always has an answer. If you say right. ask about to a character, you know, they'll probably have an answer for you. And that so kind of logic it. then. Yeah, <laughs> there's logic in the game, though. So, so, as you're saying, that you're not trying to guess the developers, that if you ask a question, you get an answer. Exactly. You know, we so, want to be responsive. And then we moved away from the typing interface to the point and click, which really, as, as the traditional players felt it dumbed down the game because it made the ability to deal with the computer so much less frustrating. <laughs> and, right. And to the early game players, you know, that frustration was part of the thrill, you know, when you finally solved something. But to me, frustration is frustration, and I really mm-hmm. want to get to the story. So I was really happy when we finally went to the point-and-click. From a design standpoint, it's a bit of a headache because – it's harder to make a good puzzle. Yeah, it's hard to have any kind of mystery uh, when you've got a menu that has all your choices laid out in front of you. Well, you just pick the right uh, menu choice, and most people would just play through all of them. Yeah. Right, yeah. No, I'm, I'm the same, Lori. Uh, I played Patrick games mainly for the story, now, of course, for the gameplay as well. But, uh, you know, sometimes when I see a puzzle, I'm like, oh, now I really have to solve this puzzle, but I, I just want to get to the story. So yes. it's great to think that I'm not alone th- thinking that. And, um, yeah, and different, go ahead. Yeah. No, you go ahead. Uh, I was going to say, you know, different players approach the games different ways. Sure, so yeah. Uh, really, you know, are not bothered by the frustration or even enjoy it and, you know, are just 
you know, they they want to figure this out themselves. And other ones are like they want to get to the next part of the story. So they'll go and look something up on, you know, online hint guide or whatever. The uh, one of the stories that Sierra, uh, one of the games, Leisure Suit Larry, and I actually heard a similar one from Scott Adams, who had a company called Adventure International, that they actually sold more hint books than they did games. So wow. people were pirating the games left and right, uh, but people would get stuck on them and then they'd go and buy the hint books. Well, that, that's amazing. I think that tells you everything about, about the games there. <laughs> that's yeah, how difficult to work. I would want to play a game, but that's how they love to play the game. And, and really, you have to, as a designer, you have to try and accommodate as much variety in the people that, that are going to play your game. You know, the ones that like that sort of thing versus the ones who just soon, you know, forget this stuff. Let me go to the story. Let me get to, the, you know, the gameplay or I want to be part of this world. I want to feel like I'm living in this world and this is me doing things. All of these are, are valid ways of approaching a game. And from a game designer, you really have to think about the player and how mm -hmm. they're going to approach the game. So uh, we went about the idea of puzzles a little differently than previous adventure games, because uh, you know previous ones would say, "Oh, I get this cool idea for a puzzle. You know, let's uh, let's put this in here." And we would we came at it from the opposite standpoint from the story. Think of uh, uh, the story as a whole bunch of pipes, and here and there are connectors between the pipes. There's the you know the elbow bend or whatever. And so he said, "Okay, where are the elbow bends in the in the story? Where are the places?" Uh, where a hero might come in and solve a problem for someone. So, you know, we went in like Quest for Glory 2 uh, was set in an Arabian Nights uh, setting. We wanted to have something a little different. And we said, okay, what kind of characters from the Arabian Nights? And we said we'd have, you know, the uh, the Sultan. Uh, we'd have, you know, the uh, meat seller and the, you know, the lamp seller and so on, the blacksmith. Uh, and then we'll have the harem girl. And then we said, okay, well, what's the problem with the harem girl? Okay, well, she's, you know, going to be married to, you know, or brought into a harem of someone she doesn't want to be married to. How can you help her? Yeah, we begin games uh, with a theme and a, uh, a setting. And for the case of uh, Trial by Fire, our second game, it, we decided on the Arabian Nights setting. And so we read a lot of books about the Arabian Nights and all the tropes that they had going into their stories. And then we tried to incorporate that into the game. And so they were before, you know, these things were cliches. Yeah, so apparently we were ahead of our, our time back then, but, you know, now it's today, and uh, uh, we came back in uh, 2012 with a uh, Kickstarter for a new game called Hero U Rogue to Redemption, and mm -hmm. the idea on that, uh, first of all, Rogue to Redemption is a little bit of a wordplay on the uh, the road to redemption. Uh, right, yeah. <laughs> and, and you're playing a rogue, so uh, our game's always been known for, you know, s silly puns and, you know, trying to have a humorous and light feel. Uh, one of the reviewers... Uh, uh, said that the you know the the key to what made our games different from others of the era is charm, and I really like that idea. The idea that we try to be charming, we try to you know have a friendly you know there's there's tension, there's excitement, but at the other at the same time you know there is a uh, you make friends in the games and there's kind of a niceness to the games. So we don't really like doing gothic horror or anything even when we did a horror game we did it more like uh young frankenstein is comedy horror than a straight right, horror yeah. yeah we like to leaven the the thing with humor we have a lot of puns we have a lot of jokes and yet we want a very serious story we're telling so we have to balance that out too to keep the game entertaining 
and to have great dramatic moments, but dramatic moments really need to be countered by having humorous things or or gentle soft moments that just make you smile so that the whole game is a is an experience and actually if you look at your favorite uh, dramatic movies you'll you know you'll always see the characters crack a joke or you know mm -hmm. something something silly happens in them uh and this is basically a uh, uh relieves the tension because you can't just have all up 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 you've got to have up down up down uh, you know, in a, a gradual gradual rise in tension uh, throughout the game, but uh, you've got to have those uh, softer moments uh, uh, to make that work. Yeah, uh, no, yeah, I, th I think that's kind of real life, though, because I've seen, you know, documentaries as well about, you know, the last, well, I saw a documentary a few months ago by Peter Jackson in the First World War. I think it's They Shall Not Grow Old. And I was expecting it to be, you know, very grim, you know, since the First World War. But actually, you know, the, in the interviews with the soldiers, with the veterans, they were t telling some really funny stories about their lives there and talking to talk about how difficult it was there. But there are also some very, very funny stories and you could see them there and they were laughing as well. And, um, and so I completely agree that no matter, you know, in fiction as well, that you can't just have it all really, really serious. Even in serious stories, there are moments of humor. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, even when the game that I played first, Broken Sword, it had a serious story with the Knights Templars and that, you know, people get killed and that, but it, it's also very humorous and, you know, very funny in places. And, nice. um, yeah, so, uh, so, so yeah, not, thank you very much. You covered <laughs> uh, a lot there. Um, no, because I think going on that topic, how that your game's uh, Quest for Glory had a lot of charm and, Rather positive uh, influence. Um, I believe I heard, I was listening to another interview, I think that you gave Laurie with Wired on a podcast a few days ago. And you mentioned how, the, you know, some examples of how the Quest for Glory games had a really positive impact on some people. There was one guy, I think you mentioned, that became or worked for Doctors Without Borders uh, after playing your game. Do you know maybe why the Quest for Glory? Uh, Quest for Glory games have struck such a chord with gamers that maybe other games haven't. Uh, do you have any ideas or did any game players give you feedback on why? Well, I think, think part of the reason is because we went with the approach that you're not watching this little cartoon character walking around the screen and, and talking to people and dealing things with Quest for Glory and, and Hero You, uh, and, well, and Quest for Glory and Hero's Quest our approach was you are the this is your avatar on the screen this is your character doing these things and so there that's why we kept accommodating what the player would want to do in the course of it we never we tried never to put words in the player's mouth in fact the main character just because we're really you know like to make things difficult for ourselves the main character never <laughs> said much of a word because we let the player put their own thoughts of what what did you say to this person you know when you asked about something that was just abstract but the play the character responded to the to you as though you were the speaker so therefore you felt like you were more involved and that this was personal and because we were treating things like emotional problems you know and and deep serious story underneath 
you got so immersed in the game that you felt like this is your character, your person, you're doing these things, you are cleaning a stable, you know, while you're amused at watching it, you're still, that's you there. Mm. At the same time, we have to have a little humility on this. Uh, you know, I don't want to say that our games are the only ones that, uh, you know, really, uh, you know, empowered players. Uh, so, you know, we had a certain uh, viewpoint in the games that, that came across. But, uh, you know, I think there are other games that do the same thing. I would say that one thing is games themselves are empowering. Yeah. Right, yeah. Out, uh, playing an adventure game for the first time, and, you know, I had never, when I started out, I had never actually played, in a, you know, on computers or dealt with computers. And the idea that you can make a mistake and then undo it was powerful. That made that mistake so less powerful. And I was always afraid of making mistakes. Mm -hmm. And computers teach you computer games teach you that you can keep going you can make mistakes you can undo those mistakes or you could continue on and they don't end your life and they aren't so dramatic and horrifying they're simply a way of solving problems yeah uh, we got into uh role-playing games tabletop role-playing games in the 70s ages us a bit uh yeah um, but uh, uh, those were a different type of game. You know, we'd played, you know, board games and Monopoly and everything all our lives. But with role-playing games, you know, you really became a collaborative storyteller uh, with the game master and the players. And you were telling the story together and you were actually kind of taking on the role of your characters. And it was very personal. Uh, the You know, the strange thing back in the 70s, uh, there was a, a lot of to-do about people saying that Dungeons and Dragons was a satanic game and that it took <laughs> people away from the church. And, you know, we scoffed at that. And was, yeah, they had demons in there, but they were the bad guys. You were out to kill the demons, not, sure, to, yeah. not to, not to uh, work with them. Uh, but at the same time, there's a grain of truth in that, because what these games do is they make you think. And they make you see yourself in other shoes. So one of the uh, things, you know, these days is that, uh, you know, there's a big divide between uh, Christians and Muslims uh, on a lot of issues. Uh, but in a role playing game, you might, you know, particularly like when we had the game set in the Arabian Nights, you might be taking on a player that's in a, you know, a Muslim society. We, we kept religion out of the games, but, you know, but mm. the idea is there. And you start to empathize and, and understand what their viewpoint is, and it's really hard to hate someone that... In the case of, uh, of uh, Wages of War, a third game, we took you to an African-type country, and you had to actually become part of a, a, a tribe of Simbani uh, natives, and they were based off the Maasai warrior cults and, and, and tribes, tribes yeah. in uh, Africa. So, therefore, you had to become part of their culture and embrace their culture and earn their respect. And as I said at first person, that's how it feels. Like, you are the one that has to earn their respect, and it's not so much of my character has to do something. So that was our roundabout way of answering the question. Of, uh, <laughs> no, you answered know. very well, actually. <laughs> several questions there. I, th I think that's why, uh, you know, that's certainly why I think it has struck a chord. One of the reasons is because, you know, the, in the games, you're empathetic towards other, cult other cultures. And, and we um, took you a wide variety of places, too, because we mm -hmm. really wanted to give you this this whole massive and this this thrill of adventure, of exploration of new things. And in the course of it, 
that you created this relationship with other characters and these characters followed through. You met them again in other games. It was like this was part of your family and you felt like you belonged in this game world. So, so taking all this into the 21st century, uh, what we tried to do with uh, Hero U uh, series, which is uh, first game is Hero U Road to Redemption, is that uh, we tried to take, you know, kind of the lessons that we both taught and learned in the course of making Quest for Glory, but also, you know, things that uh, from playing uh, Quest for Glory and from current uh, political situations and so on, you know, we tried to bring all this together and have a game that was, uh, you know, even more of that, where it's really all about character relationships. Uh, you're dealing, uh, you're in a, a university, you're dealing with the, uh, uh, the other students at the university and with the uh, teachers and staff, and you're building up relationships, and then you have uh, problems that you're solving. Uh, you know, we don't like the, we like to use the word problem more than puzzle. That you're solving mm-hmm. problems, and you can use whatever tools you have at your disposal to solve those problems. It's not it's not a puzzle where you have to fit this particular puzzle piece in to make it work. Uh, like you can say, okay, well I can sneak around this, or I can wait until the other person's gone, and then and then get through when they're not looking, and so on. There's a lot of different ways to use your skills to get through. But, you know, you're you're kind of solving this mystery, discovering this mystery. But at the same time, it's really all about the people and the other characters at the school. And sure. uh, yes. the difference between Hero U and our previous games, the, we took a, you know, one thing. We used to play a lot of games like Monkey Island and those. And uh, this game takes the approach like Monkey Island did of having you play a character rather than your avatar in the game. You're playing this uh, character named Sean O'Connor, this wannabe thief. And so therefore, this game, we get to put, you know, words in your mouth because we have Sean's words there. And the player gets to choose the attitudes that Sean is going to portray in the course of the game. So he can be, you know, snarky to people and and be, you know, uh, sarcastic or he can be sweet and lovable. And that's the player's choice. And it affects how other characters perceive him. So this is a game that allows the player to explore uh, possibilities of how to approach interactions with other people in, you know, in a safe environment, effectively. It allows the the player to play. (laughs) I I think that should be under... On the box or description, the game allows the players to play and the people can understand, you know, that you can, as you mentioned, the different player choices, um, which seems to be around in, you know, a lot of games now, even AAA games that you have, you know, choose, you know, how you respond. So speaking about, uh, you know, your latest game, Hero You, since you guys made Quest for Glory and you did the Kickstarter and a lot of people who did the Kickstarter presumably were Quest for Glory fans, but then my question would be, in this day and age, how do you appeal to both Quest for Glory fans and maybe modern game players as well who maybe are playing adventure games or role-playing <laughs> games for the first time that may not have played Quest for Glory? So how do you put those together? So how do you appeal to both the Quest for Glory fans and your adventure ge- or role-playing adventure game players at the same time? Well, for one thing, we really kept up with what's the modern game styles that are coming out. So the things that they'd be familiar with or a new player would be familiar with. And so therefore we wanted to make, you know, there's nothing difficult about our games. 
Mm-hmm. They're very easy to get into. You understand right from the part. The, the important part of user interface is the user shouldn't have to think about what the interface yeah, is. Yeah, it should, should be mostly invisible. Right, so that it should be intuitive. And so, therefore, we spend a lot of time thinking about it from the player's point of view of how they get into the game itself and to make it as easy as possible and to make it like slipping into reading a book. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, so we basically have an interactive novel here, but at the same time, the, the role-playing elements we still have in there, we, uh, we chose uh, to make them turn-based uh, combat so that you, know, you basically can think about strategically what you want to do. You don't feel under pressure that you've got to hit mash the right button at the right time. But at the same time, uh, you can also avoid pretty much all the combat in the game if you just want the story. Uh, this is a stealth game. You get to sneak around and avoid the monsters and so on if you don't want to fight. You know, we actually having the game, you know, around a, uh, you know, a, a wannabe thief who becomes a, a heroic rogue. The whole idea of having a rogue in a game is, is actually a little controversial. We had uh, our original lead programmer for Heroes Quest uh, quit the project because we oh. had a thief as a playable character. In, uh, in Quest for Glory or Hero You? Or yeah, Quest, Quest for, in Quest for Glory. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Fact, time we did it, people knew what the kinds of games we like to create. Yeah, so right, when, yeah. when you think. You know, when we think thief, we're thinking, you know, it takes a thief. We're thinking Robin Hood. We're thinking, uh, you know, the uh, uh, the thief prototype is hero. Uh, So in this game, we basically have Sean trying to become a thief at the beginning of the game and immediately gets uh, caught uh, and uh, said, uh, no, we'll we'll have no thieves here. You know, uh, the the guards in the city do not like thieves. Uh, And so but if you want to become a rogue, that's different from a thief, a rogue is a character that may kind of bend the rules a little bit, but he's doing it for the right reasons. And so we're actually, uh, you know, you're learning to be a hero in this game. And you can still, a player has a lot of leeway if they want to be kind of sneaky and nasty, but not much. Mostly we really, you know, encourage you down the path of uh, becoming a hero. For one thing, though, in the course of our games, we like every action you make, every choice you make to have consequences. And it only works if you allow the player to have a lot of choices. So we do allow the player to continue, you know, thinking that he's going to be a thief when he gets out of this school. And so, therefore, the player can see what the consequences of that approach is and what happens because they keep people at odds or because they steal things and give the player the results of what they've done. Yeah, the, the game is designed for uh, uh, multiple times replayability, and that's uh, you know because with the character relationships, you can have friends and even lovers, and basically how you approach the game. One time you might decide that you're going to uh, take a uh, magic class as an elective, and another time you might decide to study science, and each time you'll get a different play. It's quite a long game. Uh, we've mm-hmm. been told the players are taking about 25 hours to get through the entire game. And then you can replay it. So yeah, therefore, so. it's you get your money's worth. <laughs> you you get your money's worth for sure. <laughs> de- de- definitely, yeah. And, uh, uh, and what, sorry, what was it challenging from a programming point of view to have different choices for the and consequences uh, for the for the game player? So, so first of all, was that was uh, did you have that in the Quest for Glory games uh, as well, or is this something new that you added in Hero You? That's uh, no, the question. It's really, it's really some. Yeah, it's really something we've already done. We we actually made it even crazier in Quest for Glory because uh, you had a choice of being playing as a fighter, a magic user, or a thief, and later as a paladin uh, was a choice. And we had 
you know, all all the puzzles had different solutions for every character class, and quite a you know quite a few uh, people in the game reacted differently as uh, to whether you were uh, you know say a wizard or you were a uh, uh, a warrior would treat you differently. Uh, so the real the real trick uh, the programming certainly is more complex. Uh, the real trick I would say is the writing is vastly more complex because you have to have all these different options. Uh, they're only available to uh, certain characters. So for this one, we decided to simplify that part of it. You are playing a rogue, and that's all you are is a rogue. But it's still, there's, you know, just huge amounts of variation everywhere. Typically in a menu, you'll have four or five choices of what to do and say. And with our conversation in this game, if you look at, like, uh, Secret of Monkey Island, uh, you went through and you systematically tried every option in every conversation, so you can see all the clever lines they'd written. Uh, we decided that's just that's not not natural. Conversations don't flow that way. <laughs> so here, when you say something to a person, they respond to it, and you are now into a you know a sub conversation uh, that is you know that thread of conversation. And if you want to go back and uh, uh, see what happens if you had said something else. You either have to restore the game or you play it again. And we have the concept uh, that you can typically give a charming answer, a smart answer, or a, uh, a sarcastic answer. We call it moxie is the skill, your, your chutzpah. And that if you, uh, you know, if you consistently use one or the other approaches in the game, you actually start finding it works better and better. So if you are consistently sarcastic, then uh, you get so good at it, your moxie score gets so high uh, that people actually react positively to your sarcasm. Uh, they think you're being humorous, and uh, you know, and you get along in a different way than you would if you're always giving this, the intelligent answer, the uh, the smart answer. Then you know the teachers love you, and you build up your intelligence, and that helps you with some other things. So uh, you can take different approaches to the game, and you almost get a different feel, even though the the basic storyline of the game is same is the same every time you play through it. You get a very different feel every time. Right. Yes. Yeah, so the Depending on the choices you make, then you know the consequence, the way people treat you will be different. But uh, it's, it's interesting how you mentioned that the more you, you react a certain way, the better you get at it, and they will eventually you know respond positively. So so that's uh, that's interesting. Yeah, we've uh, always yeah. always gone with the practice makes perfect metaphor for our games, in that the more you work at something, the better you become at it, and so therefore in our games. Unlike a traditional adventure games, you have a series of stats that are your, you know, show what your baseline skills are, and you improve those skills as you go along in the game. So you get this this thrill of, oh, I've gotten better, and mm-hmm. so you're constantly being reinforced for doing things in the game. So it isn't just the thrill of solving a problem, but that, yeah, I, I'm even better than I was yesterday, and things like that. Yeah, sure. It feels more natural then that you improve as you go along. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so it's you know it's uh, you know the uh, expression practice makes perfect. We really uh, took to heart in these, and they are skill-based games in terms of like Dungeons and Dragons is a level-based game. You know, at each level you become a little more powerful. Uh, ours is a skill-based game. We have no character levels, but your combat skill goes up as you do combat, or as you go into the practice room and practice against the combat dummies. Your intelligence goes up as you say and do smart things. Like read books. Yeah, read books. But you, you know, you don't have to sit there and practice throwing rocks constantly. You can actually, you know, spend a half an hour in the practice room doing, you know, well, knife throwing in that. There's a wide variety of stats and skills that you could develop 
and all of them contribute to how you play the game. So I, uh, I was entering a, a competition with this game and trying to describe what category of game it was. And uh, I you know, suddenly had the, uh, the insight that uh, we're a lot of categories, that what we did with Quest for Glory is we combined the uh, traditional adventure game with the uh, computer role-playing game uh, to make a hybrid adventure role-playing game. Uh, this one is actually an adventure game. It's a role-playing game. It is a school simulator. It is a simulation game. It is a mystery game. And uh, it is a comedy game. Uh, mm-hmm. But it's also an interactive novel. It's, and it's a romance. It's you know? a, yeah, so uh, we really have about six or eight categories of game that we've sort of rolled together. <laughs> uh, and that's because it, you know, it is a simulation. We're trying to make you feel uh, when you're playing this game that you're not just playing a game, that you're, you're there. You are part sure. of this. You are Sean O'Connor, and you're helping him make decisions. One of the uh, things we decided to do is every once in a while, uh, you're playing Sean O'Connor, but he is still himself. So every once in a while, Sean will, say, you know, will say, "Are you crazy? That's going to get me killed," and uh, <laughs> and he will decide to retreat from combat before you get get him killed, stuff like that. So he does have a little bit of a personality. I mean, really, through all the dialogue you have available, Sean does his, have his own personality. Mm-hmm. No, that sounds, sounds good again. So again, you, you have the character, but you know he does his own thing at times as well, as you mentioned. <laughs> and um, another thing I wanted to ask you about, because uh, you guys went through Kickstarter, and uh, I believe it took six years to, to make the game. Uh, now, with other games that were made uh, through Kickstarter, the reception people they got from people was the ability that people were disappointed. I think it was probably budgetary concerns mainly. But with your game here with you, uh, people seem to be have reacted very positively towards it, more so than a lot of other games. Uh, is there anything that you did uh, particular to make sure the game was as good as possible, or did you get were you able to get you know the budget in other any other ways or anything at all that you did to make sure the game was ready before you released it? Well, first of all, there was the first Kickstarter that we did, and we had a very different game in mind. We had a simple game in mind. <laughs> we, had we, don't, a, we don't do simple very right, well. Right, we don't do simple very well. We, we had this, you know, this kind of roguelike game that we were going to make, and it would be easy to make, and that's the audience we were going to. It would have a small story over it, and, and you know, it wouldn't take more than a year to do. <laughs> That's when going into the Kickstarter, and then we found that the people that responded to the Kickstarter were the Quest for Glory people in particular, the ones who wanted another kind of it, uh, Quest for Glory game. And so they drove the course of what we were doing in the Kickstarter. We had to respond to them. Yeah, Kickstarter mm-hmm. is absolutely awesome, but it also uh, has a, a few uh, uh, quirks to it that make it a little tricky. Uh, one of those is that when you uh, list your rewards for the Kickstarter, that's the way you do it, is you basically set up reward tiers and say, you know, for $25 or $20, you get a copy of the game when it comes out. For this level, you get a stuffed uh, toy animal with it and so on and, uh, and various things. But the constraint is for each of those rewards, you have to give an estimated delivery date. Mm. And that's where I really fell down because, uh, you know, we decided... We didn't, you know, we were just getting back into gaming after, uh, you know, 20 years away, and we we didn't want or 15 years away, and we didn't want to make a huge, big, complicated game like we ended up making. So I estimated that we would have the game out in about a year after we finished the campaign, uh, <laughs> and 
the quirk on Kickstarter is once you put that in, because people have signed up for that reward, is you're not allowed to change that date afterwards. Another quirk of Kickstarter is that you set a goal for the game, uh, for the project, and uh, it's all or nothing. If you do not reach that number, you get zero, and the entire thing right. Uh, so we set a, uh, a goal that was moderately ambitious of $400,000 and, you know, based on our track record and so on, we thought we could get that. And we were looking at our big example at that point was uh, a double fine adventure, which became Broken Age. And that one had also set a $400,000 goal and ended up making $3.3 million. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we said, OK, $400,000, that's totally reasonable. And our budget estimates were that the game would actually take. Uh, at least $800,000 to make, even for the simple game. But, uh, you know, we said, okay, we don't think we can ask for $800,000. Uh, that's, that's just too much of an ask. So we naively went in there asking for $400,000 and thought this will be easy. And we discovered it's really, really hard. That's a lot of money. And uh, it, the feedback we got as we went along is, well, this, this roguelike thing you're doing is cute, but, you know, we want to see a new Quest for Glory. And... The problem is that Quest for Glory is very complex. Our last Quest for Glory game that uh, we did in uh, from between took us uh, three and a half years from uh, '95 to '98, and had an initial budget of one and a half million, but ended up costing Sierra four and a half million by the time it was done, and that was in uh, you know 1995 dollars. Uh, so that would be about uh, eight million dollars today. Wow. <laughs> uh, and so we're on a $400,000 budget trying to make an $8 million game. So we had a little, a few little challenges there. Uh, so, but, you know, in order to even get the 400000 we basically had to, through the course of the 30 days of that campaign, is uh, revise what we promised. And we said, okay, what we're really going to make is we're going to make a storytelling game, you know, that is a hybrid role-playing adventure game uh, along the lines of Quest for Glory somehow. And we couldn't go back and change that one year estimate. And, uh, you know, I did say it would take longer, but I don't think, you know, I don't think I was feeling being realistic at the time. I was panicked trying to get our 400,000. Uh, mm. But really, at that point, we knew it would be a two and a half to three year project. But, you know, we, there was no way we could actually communicate that to backers. So we had some very unhappy backers two years in that said, where's our game? You know, you promised <laughs> a year. Well, we promised a game for a year. And what we ended up promising was not that game. No, it's completely different. Yeah. So, yeah, we had a uh, project that uh, was going to, you know, if we wanted to do it right, was going to have a several million dollar budget. Uh, we had $400,000 to do it with. We just barely made our goal. Uh, and actually, it, you know, it came down to like, I think, four hours from the end of the uh, 30 day project is when we crossed the line. Uh, wow. So it was <laughs> very good. <laughs> I'm sorry? Keeping it close right up until the end. Oh, yeah, yeah. And <laughs> I will tell you, doing a Kickstarter is a full-time project. You know, that's a month of your life. It's actually uh, two to three months of your life devoted to nothing but that uh, Kickstarter because we had to set up the campaign beforehand, make plans for it, figure out what we were going to write in updates and so on. And then afterwards, you spend another uh, month or so, uh, you know, uh, doing uh, reviewing the uh, surveys and stuff like that. Uh, there's there's quite a bit to it. It is a it is right. a full time. And at the time, because of stuff that you know I'd read from Double Fine and so on, I had the impression that you were obligated to make a game, you know, make the project for whatever you actually got in the Kickstarter. And since then, people have said that's completely unrealistic. Games like uh, can't remember now, but that uh, vampire uh, uh, game they had basically said we're trying to raise 10 percent of our budget through Kickstarter. So they they were trying to raise five hundred thousand dollars for a five million dollar you know it was eight hundred thousand for an eight million dollar project or something like that. We did not have any other backers or venture capitalists or anything like that on it, 
and we thought we had to make the game for 400000 and it quickly became clear we couldn't possibly. Uh, the programmer who actually convinced us to do the Kickstarter came in, and, you know, and we thought we were going to pay everyone like uh, – like what we made back in the uh, you know 80s of uh, you know $15 an hour and no he wanted $60 an hour um, <laughs> and all of a sudden that you know completely blew through the budget just for one person so we could maybe have him and one artist and that wasn't going to cut it for the complexity of the game we were looking for and you know we discussed bringing in other people and basically he decided at this point that uh, he was no longer in charge and he dropped off the project and, you know, I can't blame him. He immediately got another contract that did pay him $60 an hour, but it kind of left us in the lurch. So, you know, I, I said, okay, you know, you have our blessings, go ahead. But, uh, uh, man, it hurt. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so we're basically, you know, paying people 80s level, uh, uh, you know, salaries for, uh, you know, a 2010 uh, 10s uh, game. And there has been this thing called inflation in between. I really had not worked that out or I would have figured out that. 400000 was not close to a budget for a modern game. So we scrambled. We used a lot of personal money, uh, you know, got a uh, equity loan in our home, stuff like that, which uh, I talked to uh, Dave Gilbert, who does uh, Watch It Eye, and he was aghast at that. He said, you know, you're risking your home to make a game. You can't do that. You know, games don't always succeed. We did, uh, we actually, first of all, we had a second Kickstarter uh, two and a half years later, in 2015, where we raised another 100000 So that gave us a, you know, a lovely way to get going. We just discovered on uh, art and animation that we didn't really have the expertise when we moved it from uh, 2D to 3D, which we had to do. We couldn't find 2D animators uh, that were, uh, you or know. Or a program that made them look good. Yeah, uh, we were using Unity, and Unity is really designed for 3D. Uh, so we naively said we're going to make this kind of look like a Sierra game with, you know, stages and so on. And it just didn't work well in Unity. So we had to redesign the project a year in to make things work in 3D. Uh, it was, there was a lot of stuff and a huge amount of expense and time. And, you know, it really should have been a three-year, two-and-a-half-year project is really what it – uh, what it should have been for the first place. And we should have gotten it done in two and a half or three years. But when you're working under an ultra tight budget, you're constantly making compromises. And part of those compromises is you're working with, uh, you know, people that can afford to work for that, which means they usually have a full time job and they're working 10 or 20 hours a week on your project. Mm, uh, right. And these things all stretch out the schedule. And we're not alone. I mean, uh, Broken Age uh, also promised a one year schedule and they ended up taking, I think, Three and a half or four years, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, their final budget—they reached 3.3 million, trying to get 400,000. Their final budget was eight million dollars. Yeah. <laughs> so no, I've, I've I've heard from I think nearly every developer who used Kickstarter that they all ran into some obstacles. Um, I listened to an interview with Charles Cecil of Broken Sword as well, and he said that they came into similar obstacles as well that they had to overcome. As well, I think just about everybody, I think Jane Jensen as well had challenges developing Moebius through Kickstarter. But also from what I see from, you know, our end, from the players end, is that I believe, I think we learned as well just how difficult game development can be. That it's, that's the baseline. Extremely difficult. Thing yeah. Make, making games is hard. Uh, <laughs> and, and it doesn't seem that way because you can go, you can get a free copy of Unity 3D and you mm-hmm. can prototype uh, a game with a you know character running around or something uh, really quickly and easily. And the problem is that going from a game prototype to a you know the complexity of a game like this, uh, and then going to a polished, professional, finished game, those mm-hmm. are those are different worlds. So you can prototype a game in a week, you know maybe a day, 
in Unity. They have these game jams where, you know, you spend a weekend Ooh. making a game. But getting that to a commercial level, polished final project is just a gigantic undertaking. Uh, we had, a, I think, about 30 people that worked in this game over the course of the uh, five and a half to six years. And we spent about nine months just playtesting it and refining it. Mm-hmm. Uh, after we had, you know, thought we finished it. <laughs> and uh, uh, our final budget for this game was, uh, uh, on paper, it's uh, one and a half million. In practice, we actually spent about a million dollars. And they, where's that extra half million? That's because Lori and I have not paid ourselves anything yet. We're wow. still thinking that eventually we'll, uh, we'll make something out of this game. And it's uh, ironic because one of the reasons we did this is... Uh, We'd been out of work for a few years, and uh, people convinced us that this would be a way we could make some money. <laughs> six years later, you're still raising. Yeah, yeah. Six, six years later, we're deeper in debt than it's where we started. It's a non-profit organization. <laughs> but, you know, uh, you know, we're uh, we're doing a service for the fans. It's a, it's a charity effort. Yeah, but well, we <laughs> very much. Uh, we let our fans know what was going on. We contact, you know, talked to them. We had a lot of fan involvement in our game. Uh, we had, for instance, a lot of of the portraits that you see around the game itself are backer portraits, but we tried to give them story and be part of the game, not just this thing tacked on over the game. Mm. So in some cases, the backers gave us ideas for their characters, and those were incorporated into the game, and their story affected the game. So, it, you know, it was a lot of give and take and, and uh, a lot of adaptation to what's, what's going on. Right. Uh, yeah. So, so uh, I was going to say, so 2015, early 2015, we realized that we had stretched our budget to the breaking point and that we were, uh, you know, starting to go into debt and so on. That's when we decided we had to have that second Kickstarter. By tw- beginning of 2017, uh, we thought the game was just about done. And, uh, you know, it was at least, uh, you know, getting to, we had all the story elements in and so on. We still needed polish and testing. And But at that point, you know, our credit line was stretched to the limit. Uh, we were starting to hit up our retirement accounts and uh, was like, uh, are we even going to get this thing done? And at that point, right out of the blue, I got a call from uh, a guy who is a, uh, an investor who was a, a huge Quest for Glory fan. In fact, his uh, his email address uh, incorporates Quest for Glory in the email address. Uh, <laughs> and uh, he said, you know, I've been hearing about this. You know, I'd like to get it. You know, I just found out about it. Sorry, uh, you know, sorry, I'm a little late on here, but... You know, I'd really like to get involved in this. And uh, uh, he came in and made a, a, a huge investment, uh, which, uh, unfortunately for him, it's more like a gift because he will probably never mm-hmm. see a penny in his, in his investment. Uh, I feel guilty about that. But uh, uh, he bailed us out at the beginning of 2017. He got us all the way through 2017 and into 2018 with enough money to, uh, you know, to keep everybody working and to get the game uh, into testing. And it took a solid 10 months of testing to get this game polished enough to uh, release. Uh, and we still had bugs. Uh, there, always, there always are. So we've done, uh, we're now in uh, patch uh, or version 1.5 of the, mm-hmm. uh, of the game. That uh, uh, you know, uh, We finally released it in uh, July last year. And uh, last month we came out uh, with version 1.5. And we've done some nice quality of life things, uh, allowing players to adjust animation speed and you know, fixing some storylines that... Uh, uh, you know, some of the cases, uh, most, you know, some of them worked and some didn't, uh, even after, you know, a year of testing. And so the game's really in great shape now. It's really a lot of fun to play. Uh, but it's, uh, you know, it took, 
it took that six years of pain to get there. You, you, you were working on it over the last six years. You know, it's not like yeah. you were relaxing over the last six years. <laughs> oh, no. And, and in a sense, the game's been going for 15 years because uh, uh, Lori ran a thing uh, on, the, uh, on the web called uh, The School for Heroes or the How to Be a Hero School. And uh, what we did there is uh, we took all the uh, elements of Quest for Glory and uh, said, OK, we've got the, uh, these classes of the uh, warrior and the wizard and so on. And now we're going to take these into real life. Uh, we're going to have people uh, do a fantasy quiz, effectively. And we have a, an echo of that in the game. Uh, near the beginning of the game, uh, you take your entrance exam and uh, he asks you some imaginary questions of, you know, what would you do in this situation? And that uh, actually defines some of your uh, extra uh, stats and skills you get. But uh, we did this uh, with the School for Heroes, where we asked a series of questions, then uh, developed a, uh, a psychological profile based on Myers-Briggs that classified you as a uh, you know, warrior, a wizard, a, a rogue, or a paladin. And then Lori did a role-playing game where she role-played all the different teachers at the school, and people uh, submitted assignments, and you know, I did a little thing that... Uh, uh, had forms that they could use to, uh, you know, to answer assignments and so on. And this is where some of these people that, you know, we say uh, people that decided they were going to become doctors and go down to Haiti mm. and help with uh, uh, United Nations uh, efforts down there to, to help people uh, came out of uh, not just out of the game, but also out of this school for heroes. And that was also at the same time, originally we did that website to publicize a book that Lori was co-writing with a man called, uh, you know, How to Be a Hero or? It was, uh, well, yeah, uh, How to Be a Hero. Yeah, How to Be a Hero. And then we also said, well, we should do a game uh, based on this, too. So, we you know, we had the genesis 15 years ago uh, that we were going to uh, do this, the you know, this series of books and this game and that the School for Heroes was just going to be a publicity site for it. Well, instead, the school became a thing in itself. Right, yeah. Is, is that still available, or is it focusing now well, on the game? We, 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 hadn't, we didn't have the energy to keep that going <laughs> we had to do a game. I, yeah, so, I, I, I can imagine. Yeah, at the point when we did the Kickstarter, we, uh, we had to shut down the school and, uh, you know, felt, felt sad about that. But, uh, you know, Lori was working full time. So, in other words, right. while we retired these years out of game development, <laughs> we were working on games the whole time. Right, yeah. And is the book, uh, as we hear, is that published? Or is that going to be published in the future? It probably chance? won't be published at this point in time. We may rewrite it, but we basically were uh, we were taking the game, the original games and turning it into a book in its own way that was different from the games. And so I don't know that we'll ever finish it because my co-author went off and started becoming an author on her own. Yeah, she's uh, oh. uh, she, she writes under the name uh, Michelle Baker, uh, Michelle with two M-I-S-H-E-L-L, and uh, she's actually become a fairly successful uh, fantasy author in her own right. Uh, so, you know, we talked to her about going back and doing rewrites on this. Lori doesn't feel right about finishing the book on her own. She really wants to have, uh, if she's going to do it, wants to get Michelle involved. And Michelle has said, has young children and uh, mm. uh, a successful uh, writing career. So, you know, we don't know if that will ever happen. Maybe I'll go in with uh, Lori at some point and uh, do the rewrites the book needs. But, uh, yeah, they finished the uh, first book. It's actually a pretty good, you know, uh, juvenile, young young adult uh, book. The first one is uh, by the book, and it's from the viewpoint of the magic user character. So what they did is they're basically, in a way, retelling the story of Heroes Quest, except they broke up the four characters, the fighter, the magic user, the thief, and the paladin, are, are now four children. Uh, they're brothers and sisters who are all going out adventuring, and each of them has their own journey of discovery. 
uh, as they go and learn how to uh, become skilled at their particular uh, ability. Yeah, but as I said, that was just one of the things we've worked on over the years. We worked on the school. So all of these things came together to create Hero U. You know, all the things we learned, all the games we played, all of the lessons learned over the years, except for the one about how to make money. Because (laughs) I've never learned that one. Yeah, I I don't have the marketing gene. (laughs) Somewhat earlier, I found it most important, or one of them. (laughs) But um, is is the house okay? You guys still have the house? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We actually... uh, you know, with the help of our investor, we we have not repaid the money we took out of the retirement account, but we did. Uh, we bought down the line of credit. Uh, uh, we're starting to it's starting to uh, build up again, but you know, we're we're keeping the company running. We're actually working on uh, two more game projects, oh. and you know, we'll see whether we're actually able to finish them. We'll probably do additional Kickstarter, Indiegogo at some point. One of them is uh, Summer Days at Hero U, and it's a completely different kind of game, but it's in the same setting. And has similar characters, uh, but this is more of a uh, a casual uh, social relationship game uh, without okay. uh, all the complexity of the uh, adventure game role playing uh, aspect. It's also a 2D game, a very uh, storybook style game. It's a uh, stylized. Yeah, very stylized and slightly cartoony. So it's like you know, and now for something completely different, <laughs> uh, but keeping the hero you branding because it really is set at the same school it just is a different situation and a different style game and then we're also working on the sequel to uh, road to redemption wizard's way and which you will actually follow the lines of a uh, wizard and the characters that she meets at the school and the story that involves around what her past was and how it affects her today and the future of the whole world at this point because the Hero You Rogue to Redemption was a very lighthearted, lightweight thing. It was really all about Sean and Sean's friends. But with Wizard's Way, we're upping the ante because the things that happen at the school are starting to affect the rest of the world. Yeah, one of the things one of the things we've always gone for, the reason we don't have arbitrary puzzles, I mentioned the, uh, you know, the pipes, uh, is that we think everything should be uh, internally consistent, that there should be a, you know, a context to it. So we have an overall storyline going on here where there's a lot of stuff that is not in the game. But we know that, you know, there are things going on in the world. There's some very dark, dangerous things going on in the world around the school that are starting to trickle in and have some, you know, some effects on the university. And that's what Sean, you know, gets a little hint of these in the second half of the game where he's starting to, uh, uh, you know, get the idea that, there's some pretty dark goings on around and there's, you know, political machinations and all sorts of stuff going on in the outer world that are only hinted at in the game. And as we go through the game series, if we're able to complete it, you know, it's really designed to be a five game series uh, like quest for glory that uh, the stakes will go up at each game. Because it is, you know, we plot these things like you do a, trilogy or quadrology in our case a quintology Um, yeah that things have to build on the previous game and they have and they have to get a little more intense because you really are like a good story like a good novel you have to keep the rising tension you have to raise the stakes it can't be more of the same it has to be more of everything 
as you go along. And also, as players become more experienced with it and their characters become more skilled, uh, you've got to uh, have higher challenges for them. Because challenge really is a critical part of a game. The player has to feel challenged. He's not just sleepwalking through this and doing whatever it, you know is put in front of him. He's thinking about things, and things have to get more intense because that keeps you engaged. And you don't feel like, oh, I did this in the last game, and okay, fine. It's <laughs> not very punny, though, does it? So uh, in, a, in a way, our games are like the movie Last Action Hero. Uh, so. In a sense, it's a serious story, but, you know, it's it's making fun of itself and, uh, you know, having fun with it. We do it in terms of, like, if you're, you know, looking at a vase, you know, there's you've seen 33 vases in the game. Every one of them has to have a different description and different interactions with it. So we, we can get a little silly there. Right. But the story, the story stays serious. Uh, do you have any tentative release dates for the next two games? You mentioned that... Uh, you know, hopefully you can finish them. If you do finish them, do you know more or less when you might like to release them? I know, I know they might change. But... Uh-huh. Well, so based on our experience in the first game, we uh, we estimated one year and it took five and a half. Uh, <laughs> so... uh, then, then I'd say we ought to be able to have the next game out in uh, just a couple months, right, Lonnie? Right, yeah. Oh, we uh... haven't started writing it yet, but... Uh... No, well, we have got art resources going. We've had it... I mean, we do have artists working for us, so they they have had to have something to do. <laughs> so we've had people working on both these projects for six months while the uh, testing phase of uh, Hero U was uh, Rogue to Redemption was going on. Of course, uh, Summer Days has the name Summer in the game, so I think it really ought to be at, uh, out uh, before <laughs> summer. And uh, obviously that's not this summer because uh, it takes a while. Uh, mm-hmm. But... Uh, yeah, we're uh, we're gonna try and have a uh, late spring launch probably for uh, summer days in here. Right, so that it's right out twenty twenty summer twenty twenty. Okay, and uh, we'll be working on it all this year. Uh, as I said, it is a simpler game than uh, Rogue to Redemption, and so therefore I, I have complete confidence. We have part of the problems we were having with. Uh, Rogue to Redemption was all sorts of technical problems of what, you know, what engines work, uh, how the art should be created, and all of those problems have been solved. We're, we know what we're doing for that part of the game, and we now have our engine set up to be able to work it. So uh, it all comes down to design and with a lot of the art already created, then it's a lot of the roadblocks to getting a game out have already been hurdled, you know? Yeah. That's, that's great to hear. So I think Wizard's Way will take uh, about two years uh, to uh, write and develop. And, you know, Lori had the idea that she could do it in parallel with Summer Days, but uh, I... The art will. <laughs> the art will. The, yeah. art, the art will be in parallel. Yes. So we have this, uh, you know, the system of how to get a game out. You know, if the art is working on parallel with Summer Days, because they'll, they'll, they'll be finished about the time we start. You know, so therefore we will have all these things as our basis, which otherwise, you know, with Rogue to Redemption, we were all furiously working at, the, you know, at the same time trying to do things. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. so I guess we could uh, guess fall 2022 for uh, Wizard's Way, but uh, uh, <laughs> I'd be kind of shocked if it actually got out that year. We'll see. Oh, I mean, yeah. well, it's certainly our goal. Oh, that's, that's good to, to hear. Have, um, would you consider, I know you mentioned that you might use a Kickstarter again for that game, the sequel. 
Uh, would you consider uh, pitching the game to publishers maybe to try and get more money that way and speed up the process a little bit? Or is that a possibility at all? You know, I really have no idea how. We've uh, we've talked to publishers before, and, you know, I guess an example is uh, when we took a hiatus from Sierra at one point, we went to work for, uh, uh, you know, under contract to Legend Entertainment and created the game Shannara based on uh, Terry Brooks' sort of, uh, Sh- he called it sort of Shannara, everybody else in the world calls it sort of Shannara. Um, <laughs> and I think even Terry's been convinced of Shannara now, but... <laughs> he convinced us to call it Shadra. Uh, so, uh, Shana, uh, Shanara, that we went in there where uh, Bob Bates uh, met with us at a uh, uh, game developers conference, and uh, he asked us to uh, pitch uh, five or ten different concepts of uh, uh, games we'd like to do for Legend. And we came out with some ideas that we were really excited about. We've got the, uh, the Space Station Naglfar science fiction game and some really interesting ideas that we had for games. And uh, we pitched uh, each of these with like a, you know, one page each uh, pitch. And Bob said, you know, great. These are really great ideas. Well, we have this uh, uh, license with a major, uh, you know, New York Times bestselling author. And we'd like you to have that, uh, have you make that game for us. So we ended up making Shannara. Yeah, we have pitched an awful lot of games over the years. We've got a file full of, uh, you know, really cool ideas for games that uh, <laughs> you know, we had uh, infinite bandwidth and infinite lifetimes. We'd make all of them. <laughs> oh, that's, that's all I was saying. No, no one imagined that, uh, you know, at least if I were a publisher, I might, you know, which I'm not, unfortunately. You know, be be interested because obviously you guys have the experience. Even now, lately with Hero, you wrote to Redemption, which has got very good reception. But also, fantasy seems to be you know in the mainstream now. You know, with Harry Potter, Game of Thrones, and now the Wheel of Time, and the the other one, uh, what's it called, um, Narnia, coming to Netflix, and then Lord of the Rings now coming to Amazon. So it seems like the perfect time to be releasing fantasy games. So you know, I, I imagine that publishers would want to publish the games, but then well, again, the, I'm... The, yeah, the obvious one for us would be Activision, uh, because <laughs> they own uh, the uh, Sierra Online license, and, you know, one of, the, one of the things I do get from fans all the time is they say, well, you know, the Zero U thing is great, but we want to play a new Quest for Glory. And, right, yeah. And we're kind of, we've kind of shrugged and say, well, you know, Quest for Glory is just a name, and in fact, it's not even the original name, it was Heroes Quest. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so, you know, we don't want to pay, you know, half a million dollars for a license for uh, for Quest for Glory. But, you know, if we were if we did a project for Activision that, you know, uh, and they wanted to fund a new uh, uh, thing. But they did their experiment with uh, King's Quest, where they got uh, the odd gentleman to make a uh, uh, set yeah. of uh, King's Quest games. And uh, my understanding is that it did OK, but it didn't make the amount of money that they, you know, they're. You know they're they're a big company. They're used to mega hits like they Call have, of Duty and World of Warcraft. World of Warcraft. They're getting in. And money. they have Call of Duty. Yeah, they're getting in the you know millions. Hundreds of millions, of billions of dollars. Millions a month. Uh huh. Those games, as opposed to say the uh, the King's Quest game where they got maybe maybe if they were lucky they got a million dollars off of. Yeah, them. they might have gotten five million, but uh, yeah, it's 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 it do- isn't. It's like petty cash drawer compared precisely. to uh, their big right. titles. So they're not going to be looking at these games and saying, well, that's real money, because to them, it's just chump change. Right, yeah. You mentioned that uh, there are lots of, you know, puns and jokes in your games, in particular Hero and you. Do you have a particular favorite joke or favorite pun or favorite scene in the game? 
It's so hard to do jokes, <laughs> <Just one. laughs> especially since our jokes are organic. They don't, they're not somebody making, cracking a joke, although Sean tries to crack jokes throughout the and game. And they're terrible. And they're terrible. <laughs> and that's part of the fun of it. But, uh, you know, a lot of them are, are uh, you know, references to other things. So there's nothing that you could say, oh, this is funny. It's like, you know, the the storyteller type of comedian who sets up the joke and then delivers off of it and you don't expect the ending you don't expect what he's going to say and we have right. those all through the game yeah so uh, you know i've always had a reputation as a punster but uh, they, you know they have to be you can't pre-plan them i mean they you know there's you you get sort of a, a little stock of things like uh, you know there's all kinds of uh, jokes you can make around trees uh you know, uh, uh, I'll, I'll go out on a limb here. And then if you if you make enough uh, tree references, uh, uh, leave me leave me alone, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, <laughs> eventually they start being funny. Uh, but uh, most of my things are basically because my brain doesn't work like normal people's brains. Uh, so I'll be having a conversation. I'll look at a sign and uh, I will for a moment misread a, a uh, you know, a, a sign at a store, a street sign or something and switch a couple letters or change the word, and I'll start laughing at, you know, uh, uh, the idea that, uh, I can't even think what offhand, but, you know, it's just basically the idea that this says something entirely different than what it says. You know, I know it's wrong, uh, but it just strikes my funny bone. Uh, so right. that's where, you know, our humor in the game comes from is, uh, like, uh, Laurie actually did the one in the very first room of the game where uh, there's a cabinet, and, you know, we originally just had it straightforward as we actually had a... Uh, you know, a game item hidden in there that we in the demo that we moved to a different location for the game. But you start opening the drawers and say, okay, there's this in there. And so she said, okay, uh, there's a, a bunch of spools of thread in here. And, uh, okay, well, there's uh, some uh, needles and uh, some yarn. And uh, and eventually uh, Sean says, oh, I guess this is a sewing cabinet, which is a very subtle pun because that sounds <laughs> straightforward. But actually, us, you know, a uh, hundred years ago, a sewing cabinet was a cabinet that contained the sewing machine and was not a cabinet at all. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, and then uh, th the final punchline is uh, where he says, you know, uh, uh, you know, I was hoping to really uh, make a discovery here, but I guess it's just so-so or something. You know? <laughs> I, I wanted to find something great here, but it's just so-so. It only works because you get that whole string of sewing-related things together. Right, yeah. And then he makes the, the little pun at the end. But it's, you know... <laughs> Uh, okay, so it goes up. Really kind of minor jokes, but they're everywhere. I, we have the uh, piano bench. I have uh, sheets of music where, uh, you know, we talked like, you know, uh, instead of a French horn, he has a, uh, a reference to uh, pastries, and it's music for the cream horn, which is a pastry. <laughs> right, well, I, I love puns myself, you know, at, uh, at work, you know, I used to drive everyone crazy with puns as well. I'd come in and just tell jokes, and my boss would say, okay, Shorsha, can you please... Don't tell any joke before you clock in. Clock into work first after <laughs> breakfast, and then you can tell one joke per day. No more. Oh, there is. Oh, that is, of course, impossible. Uh, uh, you know, in a sense, in a sense, we hide behind uh, puns. They're a way when you're nervous in a situation of uh, oh yeah, being silly, being the class clown. So, uh, but in a game, 
the humor is serious business. <laughs> yes. You know, it's really hard to construct these things and to come up with these, especially off off the cuff, except when you're actually writing them. And suddenly, you know, uh, you've, you've got all these series that you keep going on. It gets much easier to keep putting these things in. Yeah, and in this game, sure. in fact, I found it impossible. Uh, when we did the, uh, the uh, online school for heroes. We had a thing that if you intentionally got every question, the stupidest, you know, the, the most boring answer, it wasn't stupidest, but the most boring choice for every answer, uh, it decided that your class was a certified public accountant. You became a CPA and that you didn't really fit in any of the hero classes. And so we made a couple of CPA jokes of this. And that actually <laughs> is my life uh, because uh, you're trying to deal with uh, trying to make a, uh, you know, a $2 million game on a, on a half million dollar budget that, you know, I spent an awful lot of my time doing paperwork and and uh, bookkeeping and tax accounting and so on. And it's really hard to go from that to being a funny guy. Uh, so <laughs> fortunately, uh, I noticed that uh, Josh Mandel, uh, who we worked with uh, briefly, he actually, uh, when we rented a house in Oakhurst, uh, California, and uh, uh, when we worked for Sierra, and then when we uh, bought our own house, uh, Josh Mandel came to the company and uh, he was the next tenant of our house. So, you know, we kind of had this relationship oh. right at the beginning. You know, it's, it's just this weird uh, personal to work relationships crossing over. Anyway, Josh had uh, uh, been the, uh, the co-author with uh, Al Lowe on the uh, Leisure Suit Larry uh, remake and became totally burned out on it. It was just too much for him. And he dropped out of social media for a year and so on. I noticed he had come back. And so I very I knew that he was really burned out. But I kind of timidly approached him and said, uh, uh, Josh, do you think you'd be interested in uh, helping us write some jokes and stuff for this game? And of course, his background before he even came to Sierra's, he was a stand-up comedian. Was uh, it wasn't his day job? He was a marketing guy, but uh, his day, you know, he he did the comedy clubs and stuff. Uh, Josh said, "Well, I guess I could give it a try." And he came in and basically wrote most of the stuff that I had had on my plate for writing stupid puns all through the game. Uh, <laughs> and uh, his were a little more sophisticated than mine. He's got some. Uh, uh, classical literary references and so on, but uh, yeah, it's a uh, you know it, it's hard to, it's hard to be uh, funny and serious uh, in the same week. <laughs> oh yeah, no, and, and I imagine it's also hard you know to have to balance as well between serious and uh, comedy uh, in in a game as well. Um, we are told we are told that sometimes we go overboard on that on the comedy. Yeah, well, <laughs> don't think that's, uh, that should be too much of an issue, but. You know. But um, now before, before we finish, I just wanted to ask, uh, because I know for the Quest for Glory games, in each game, as you mentioned, there was a different culture, mythology, as you mentioned, the African culture and uh, Middle Eastern in Quest for Glory 2. Is there any culture that you didn't use in the Quest for Glory games that you would like to use in a future game? So, for example, maybe in the Hero U games. I noticed that mostly to school. But is there any other culture that or mythology that you would like to use in a future game that you didn't use previously? We were going to go to India. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, the infinite. Yeah. Uh, uh, we actually talked, uh, you know, before Sierra closed its doors in uh, 99, we had actually talked about doing an entirely new series, another four or five games, that would be set in the Orient. And we probably would have done one game in uh, India, one in Japan, one in China, maybe one in Korea. Uh, something like oh. that. We would have had all, you know, 
uh, Oriental mythology and, uh, and and culture and setting. So that would have been fun. Somebody suggested they would have liked to see games with uh, kind of a, a, a Nordic setting. And, you know, we could certainly, you know, there's a, a rich mythology around uh, the Eddas and the sagas, uh, you know, going with, you know, Sweden, Finland, uh, Norway, and so on. Uh, now, we actually, uh, uh, you're from Ireland. We actually mm-hmm. uh, brought in a fair amount of Irish culture. As, uh, uh, Hero You Rogue Redemption is set in uh, uh, Sardinia, which is off Italy, and we, we uh, in the Mediterranean. Uh, but the main character... Uh, yeah, is, Sean uh, O'Connor. <laughs> yeah, Sean, Sean O'Connor. Uh, we sort of Americanized the spelling. Uh, just uh, I'm not sure if that was intentional or an accident originally, but decided, <laughs> let's keep it that way. But his family actually uh, uh, comes from Ire, E-I-R-E, oh, uh, which is sound, you know, sound in Ireland. Uh, and, uh, you know, they have a, a bit of Irish culture. There's a teacher of the school, uh, Moira Glenn Shannon, who's uh, uh, Irish. Uh, oh. and so we have a, a bit of that in there. You know, we we love I, I love Irish music and uh, mm. uh, you know the accents and the culture and so on. Uh, we'd love to visit there sometime. We've never been. Oh yeah, well sure. I'll, I'll be here if you want to come over. <laughs> oh okay, good. Yeah. Any time. We actually uh, we made it to England uh, last year. Uh, okay. Uh, for uh, the uh, Casual Connect conference. Uh, and the conference uh, didn't do too much for us, but we had a great time there. Oh, that's good. Well, so uh, we got close. Okay, yeah, close. Maybe next time we can cross the sea. <laughs> yeah, we'll cross. Just, cross just to hop yeah. over from England. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. Uh, uh, like to visit Scotland. Well, well it's very nice. Yeah. I'm an O'Brien. My yeah, Lori. Lori's uh, Lori's actually an O'Brien. Yeah. For her oh, uh, so. mother's family, were the O'Briens. Yes. Also, oh, that uh, you might have Irish ancestry then, or yeah. Wow. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Well, <laughs> so and, you uh, back to your, to your homeland then. To your, yeah, and, uh, my, my my mother's family was uh, English Welsh. Uh, okay. So, uh, we, you know, we have uh, we have some traditions there. But let's see. Uh, okay. Well, let's. Uh, I guess the other one, you know, Fiddler in the Roof. We could do a uh, you know a Israeli or you know a Jewish uh, kind of game would be interesting. Yeah. Um, not many of them. So, so there's uh, there's endless amounts of material that we could do uh, a lot of interesting games uh, immersed in a culture, and and that really gives you a setting for the game that uh, you know gives it some character that beyond just being ah you know yeah, made up thing. Yeah, it's not a thing. generic fantasy world. Sure. It's a world that is rich in culture and stories, and we love exploring them. Sure, and it's also you know recognizable, even though it's fantasy. You go, oh, that's African culture or Middle Eastern or Celtic or something as well, which may help. Precisely. Uh, if you really do want, that's what our games try to do, is bring the fantasy to life by making it grounded in the real world. Mm-hmm. So, okay. Well, I think uh, that's, that's it. Uh, I'll give you guys uh, a break now. So uh, before we finish, Dan, so where can people buy your game, the Quest for Glory games and Hero You Rogue to Redemption? Okay, uh, actually, both Quest for Glory. Uh, first of all, Hero U is hero-u. It's hero-u, and then colon, Rogue to Redemption. And that was a terrible mistake in our part to put that punctuation there, because it makes it very hard uh, to search. <laughs> if I, mean, yeah. if I type in hero-u in a, a web editor, it thinks it's two words, hero and you. Uh, but they, uh, our games are currently available on uh, GOG and Steam. Uh, best place to go, you might start out with, uh, if you're using either of those, you, I, I'm sorry, uh, hero, you, uh, uh, steam and gog.com. 
mm-hmm. you can go to our website, uh, hero-u.com. Uh, okay. You get more information about it. Also has links to the uh, uh, the store sites. And uh, it turns out that uh, the Quest for Glory collection they uh, remastered it and bundled mm-hmm. it in, in the DOS box. So you can play these uh, uh, '90s games of modern computers, and uh, uh, they were also available on both Steam and GOG. Uh, I have a, a contract that's been sitting here for several months, and you know one of my many guilt factors of things I don't get done. But uh, very soon we're going to be on Fire Flower Games in uh, Europe. Oh, okay. Uh, and uh, just just have to get the paperwork done. Right. Uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, and... Yep. Uh, so uh, and uh, we uh, reduced the price. We we tried to price it as a premium game originally, and uh, discovered that uh, even though you know it doesn't really matter how big a game is or how much it costs to develop, that people have a perception indie games are in a category. Mm. And, uh, so we uh, did lower our price uh, beginning of the year to uh, twenty dollars, and uh, you know we think that's a ridiculously low and fair price. Uh, you know, 100 hours of uh, gameplay. You know, uh, I th- you know, we uh, we want people playing them, so we we like the fact that we have, uh, you know, a reasonable price that most people can fairly easily afford. Success in this game will help fund future ones and will uh, you know help us keep this thing going on. You know, until we're uh, 90 or so. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, retirement okay. uh, retirements <laughs> for the birds. Yeah, yeah, the guys are still still working, and it, it, which is great to see. You know, a lot of people are delighted that you got back to. To making games again and are you guys on social media by any chance can, can people find you you there or yeah we have a uh, facebook page for hero you and uh i think it's actually like uh, facebook.com slash the school for heroes because that's uh what we used initially but uh if you go to facebook and search for hero dash you or if you uh or the school for heroes you should be able to find the page yeah we're very active on that okay and, uh, oh uh, we also have another new project that uh uh, Lori, oh, yeah. uh, brainchild of Lori, which is uh, the uh, Heroes Feast cookbook, and it's uh, I think we're doing that as a Hero apostrophe S uh, feast. So, uh, uh, but uh, you go to Heroes Feast without the apostrophe H E R O S Feast dot com, and uh, there isn't much there yet, but uh, there's also a Heroes Feast page on uh, Facebook. It's all about the food of the world. Uh, that's the game world of uh, Gloriana and food, so the cuisines from all around this world. And so we're doing a cookbook based off of those. Yeah. So as fans have documented, uh, Quest for Glory had uh, you know dozens of uh, uh, recipes mentioned in the game, but didn't actually have the recipes or any details on them. Maybe just a, a quick description of what it was. And so the idea is to take uh, ones for that game and from all the settings. Uh, of our games and to make a, uh, a, a both a virtual and a physical cookbook out of it. So we'll probably do a Kickstarter for that at some point too. Yeah, and, it's not like we are uh, workaholics or anything. <laughs> <laughs> well, it comes down to Lori loves to cook and she's really, really good at it. And well, uh, yeah. we wanted to get our fans involved in that one. And so we're getting fans to pr- send in recipes and then we're testing them and tr- trying them out and refining them that way. And so, yes, we have a very strong Facebook presence and uh, Lori also is a, uh, a very serious amateur uh, photographer and uh, Photoshop user. So uh, uh, she's been uh, doing a uh, you know a manipulated photo image a day on uh, Facebook. Oh, it's, it's photographic art is what it is. So uh, she's kind of taken that on as a personal challenge to uh, take uh, one of her photographs and you know and make it into art and put it up on uh, Facebook every day. So. Uh, you can look her up as, uh, I guess she's Lori Cole or Lori Ann Cole. I'm not sure what, what your Facebook name is. She's up there. Okay. Uh, check it out. Because you're not busy enough as it is, I imagine. Right. 
Yep. Uh, so I have a Twitter account and uh, occasionally uh, either post stuff there or it's automatically posted when we do a blog entry and so on. Uh, Hero-U.com uh, also has a uh, uh, an occasional blog every month or so. We uh, uh, post stuff about the making of the games and the you know the, the cookbook and, and stuff we're doing. So uh, you know we we try to keep active in social media. There's a a limited number of hours a day, and we, you know, we have to find time uh, for my World of Warcraft raids and so on. But, uh, <laughs> well, I'm amazed actually you have time on World of Warcraft because of everything yeah, well, else you're doing. But. Yeah, that, uh, you know, the, I certainly periods uh, when I was supposed to be working in this game, I would say I had a full time job playing WoW. Uh, so I've, <laughs> I've managed to I've managed to cut that down to a part time job. I'm only spending about 20 hours a week now instead of 40. But yeah, it's uh, these. Uh, and WoW, WoW is the uh, MMO we would have made uh, if we had been able to make an MMO of Quest for Glory. Uh, well, maybe in the future. You never know. <laughs> yep. Uh, we came close at one point. Uh, after Quest for Glory, or actually before, after Quest for Glory 4, before Quest for Glory 5, uh, they actually brought us in uh, to see whether they could rebrand their game The Realm as World of Quest for Glory. And uh, we looked at it, and uh, it just didn't have the tools for doing the... Uh, the story elements and so on that we uh, uh, felt we needed to make it a uh, you know an immersive game, uh, so we uh, we passed on that. But uh, that led to the talks that led to Quest for Glory Five being made. Okay, well maybe in the future, as I mentioned. And was there actually a book that I heard that you were writing about Heroes Quest? Was that what Laurie was uh, was working on? Yeah, that's or... uh, the 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 book we have that uh, uh, may never be released. Okay, uh, so, so that's what Lo- what Laurie was working on. Okay. Yes. So we, okay, we have yeah. we have the book, but we haven't touched it in fifteen years. Okay. And uh, okay, so are there any last words that you want to mention uh, to other people listening, to fans of your games, or to other developers or anything? I'll leave it to you guys then to close us out. Well, it's all about the fans. Our games are. Um, we really respect fans, and we like their input, and we you know try to make our games. Them. Yeah, so we really want every game to be a personal experience where you feel like the game is for you. Uh, and one of the things recently, you know, we're, we're constantly getting, uh, uh, you know, fan mail and stuff from people that uh, uh, say that, you know, our games really spoke to them. And uh, we get letters from uh, the uh, former Iron Curtain, uh, Russia and Ukraine and so on. Uh, we get letters all the time from people who say, well, you know, I'm sorry I pirated your game because they were not for sale. And <laughs> In my country, but uh, <laughs> you brought you brought hope to dark time, and you know that's pretty exciting. That's you know uh, you know leaving aside the monetary aspect, you know we've never cared whether we got rich from the games. Uh, you know we like to uh, eat, and you know the uh, the U.S. doesn't have uh, 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 general health care, so we pay a fortune for health care. So uh, you know it's nice to be able to pay our medical bills and so on. But uh, but that's not our main goal. Our main goal is to tell stories and just. You know, to share with people and for everybody, every person who plays our games to feel like they are in the game. Oh, well, <laughs> I think you, this game was you, written for you. So yeah, so it's games for you. Yeah, oh, it's a hero <laughs> for you. <laughs> yep, you can uh, be a hero. Yeah, and uh, in fact, uh, the first game was was subtitled "So You Want to Be a Hero." <laughs> Uh, yeah, I think actually from my point of view, you know, that's probably one of the main reasons why I think it has spoken to people because the main character that he simply wants to be a hero, and I think that speaks to all of us that we all want to have some sort of positive impact, and we do that in this game, you know, through this hero. So at least that's what I found. I think most people want to be heroes; they want to better mm-hmm. themselves. And uh, uh, as for the ones that don't, and the ones that want to be scums and villains. Uh, <laughs> That's fine. Don't play our games. We don't need you. (laughs) (laughs) 
Exactly. So oh, yeah, we only... didn't make it for them. We made it for the we made it for the hero and everybody. That's exactly. what we villain you, yes. <laughs> so only heroes need apply. Yeah. So well, thank you very much, Dan Corey and Lori Cole. I really, really appreciate speaking to you guys, and I really looking look forward to seeing what you guys are working on next and playing upcoming games. And uh, and the best of luck. And I hope you don't need to go through the same challenges. I hope you don't need to put your house on the line literally again, uh, because that nobody should have to do that. <laughs> well, all we need to do is we need everyone who uh, uh, tries the game and likes it to uh, tell uh, half a dozen of their friends and mm -hmm. uh, spread the word, because the big problem, there's so many games out there, and you can't tell the... You know, on the I surface, know, yeah. you can't tell the difference between a game that was written in two weeks and one that took six years to make. So mm -hmm. we, you know, we do need a little help getting the word out. Yeah. Okay. Well, do what we can. And anyone, anyone listening as well, if you please either share the podcast or share the game Hero You Road to Redemption with anyone you know. Because fantasy is, is big now. You know, it's cool now. It's in the mainstream. So just yeah. anybody could, should enjoy yeah. the game. So, that's, uh, that's been a great thing for us because we've been fantasy fans since we were, you know, like teenagers, <laughs> and that made us uh, nerds and outcasts uh, uh, back then. <laughs> now, now we're the now we're the end thing, and yeah. uh, well, now, now, yeah, now it's the mainstream, you know, with Harry Potter, even the Marvel movies now. That's uh, you know, it's it's cool to be a nerd now. So. Yeah, and and we like to fantasize. Everybody likes to fantasize. Everybody likes to imagine what life could be, and uh, you know of that's course. what it's like. It's it's an escape, but it's also an aspiration. Of course. Uh, well, the very best of luck, and I hope to talk to you guys again when you release your next few games. Uh, it'd be great to talk to you again. So sure, we'll, uh, we'll get in touch. Uh, you know, before hero, uh, before summer days is done, uh, and get your preview. Sure. Yep. Yeah, perfect. Okay, well, thank you very much, Dan. Okay, thank you, Trisha. So that was my interview with Corey and Laurie Cole. I hope you enjoyed it. And thank you once again to the Coles for agreeing to speak with me. I had a great, great time, and I could listen to them for hours. And thanks also to Roberta Vaughan, the public relations manager of Transolar Games, who put me into contact with the Coles. So... There will be no episode next week because I will be on holidays, but I will be back in two weeks. So the next episode will be out on March the 29th. So I will see you then. So if you like the Adventure Games podcast, then please subscribe, rate and review. Wherever you listen to podcasts, please leave a review on iTunes if you can, as every review helps and reviews will help get the word out especially for adventure game developers who appear on the podcast. Now, you can also follow me on social media. You can follow me on Twitter at AdventGamePod. You can follow me on Facebook at Adventure Games Podcast. You can also follow me on Instagram at Adventure Games Podcast as well. And we're also on Discord at Adventure Games Podcast. So if you our adventure game developer or adventure game player, you can follow us there. So again, please feel free to retweet and share podcast episodes and the podcast to people who you believe may enjoy it. And you can also find more information about the podcast on www.adventuregamespodcast.com. So until next time, thank you.
Thank you.